welcome back to the White Noise Podcast. If you're a first-time listener, my name is Dr. Mohan Dutt, and I am joined by my co-hosts, Dr. John Barkham and Dr. Alok Sachdeva. For first-time listeners, we are a sleep medicine-focused podcast that uses expert interviews to dive into the complex aspects of various sleep medicine topics. We're at free form and generally unscripted, and therefore I would like to take this time to say that the views expressed in this podcast are our own and do not reflect the views of the University of Michigan or the Veterans Administration. In addition, we do not provide medical advice. If you are in need of immediate medical assistance, please contact your personal physician or call 911. I would again like to thank you for listening. We hope this podcast not only entertains, but teaches you something new. A little information about our speaker today. Dr. Miranda Lim is an associate professor in neurology at Oregon Health and Science University and a staff neurologist and principal investigator at the VA Portland Healthcare System. She is the director of a basic and translational research program called Sleep and Health Applied Research Program, or SHARP. She earned a combined MD-PhD degree from Emory University in Atlanta in 2006 She then completed a neurology residency at Washington University in St. Louis in 2010. There, she studied the role of orexin and the sleep-wake cycle in a mouse model of Alzheimer's disease. These studies revealed that sleep and orexin modulate the deposition of amyloid plaques in the brain. She completed fellowship training in sleep medicine at the University of Pennsylvania and an NIH T32 postdoctoral fellowship studying sleep and traumatic brain injury. She received a VA Career Development Award early in her career, and she is, and her research is currently supported by the VA, DOD, NSF, and NIH to uncover the mechanisms by which sleep promotes brain health in a variety of neuropsychiatric disorders, including traumatic brain injury, post-traumatic stress disorder, autism spectrum disorder, Parkinson's disease, and Alzheimer's disease. Hello, and welcome back to Noise Podcast. I'm Dr. Mohan Dutt, and I got Dr. Barkham. Jonathan Barkham. Thanks, John. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Fall asleep there. I thought uh, you were just going to make the introduction. No, yeah, no. I think I did that last time, and then I talked too much. So No, it's fine. You don't talk too much. Okay. So in today's episode, we're going to be talking about trauma-related sleep disorder with Dr. Miranda Lim. Miranda, we're really happy to have you here with us today. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming in. Yeah. You know, John and I, we heard your talk at the sleep conference and we both were like, it would be great if we could have you on. And then, I mean. And here I am in Ann Arbor. And here you are in Ann Arbor. So serendipity kind of worked out nicely that that I emailed you when I did email you and that you responded when you did and you happened to be in Ann Arbor. So it all worked out. It worked out well for all of us. So before we get started with the actual interview, kind of just want to ask you some get to know you questions. So the first one we always ask is what's your thing of the month right now? I mean, I don't know if I have a monthly thing, but this past year um, I've really gotten into dance. Um, There's a a dance movement that we've gotten into that's called Nia. It's um, non-impact aerobics, but it's kind of this weird mix of yoga, martial arts, and Zumba, but with mindfulness. Um, And I think that sort of movement has really helped me kind of work through a lot of the pressures of the day and like sort of thoughts that kind of pile up. Um, So that's, yeah, doing that all year. And it's virtual and also in person. Oh, that's cool. John, do you you do any dance? I don't dance unless I've been drinking. Okay. Specifically, (laughs) there's nothing about Nia that says you can't drink. (laughs) And the best part is they have these retreats. So, you know, like in Panama or Mexico for a whole week. That's cool. There's an excuse for it right there. Yeah. Yeah. Travel. I'm actually, I have a wedding that I'm attending in two weeks. So I'm court, well, I'm dancing there. So, like, one of my cousins emailed a, a video that she choreographed for like, eight of us to do so you gotta what, learn it gotta it's learn a plan then. Bo- that's a bit learn easier than freestyling bollywood bollywood dance so that'll be that'll be fun i'm doing it up with some karaoke oh <laughs> <laughs> yeah thankfully thankfully there'll be no karaoke <laughs> so, um what what's what's your thing this month i started the sequel of that book i was reading red mars so it's, oh. i think it's green mars there's like three it's there's red mars green and then blue mars i think or maybe it's blue mars and green mars i forget 
by, by Kim Stanley Robinson. So basically you're saying it's a must read. He goes, he taught, he or she, I don't know if the author is, but they go into a, uh, a lot of the description of the technology that you'd need. And I just think it's really like really out there. It's really clever. Um, and I don't know, it just, then it's got some, you know, it's like storylines, right. other stuff in there, but. And my thing is, is what did I say? I said it was football. Football is always my thing. So we're not going to, we're not going to double up because we just talked about that. I actually watched this show um, called Only Murders in the Building and it's on Hulu. It, it's really good. It's got Steve Martin and Martin Short and Selena Gomez. And they are podcasters who are investigating like a murder in real time. And that so could be us. It could be us. Yeah. Um, but it's like, it's like a, it, it, it's like a satire of like the true crime um, podcast space. Uh-huh. And Steve Martin and Martin Short are hilarious. And, you know, them together always reminds me of, uh, well, it's not the three, three amigos, three amigos, which is like one of my favorite movies of all time. So, uh, so they're great. Selena Gomez is awesome in it as well. So it's definitely worth checking out. It's on the second season on Hulu. So, uh, all right. Uh, and the next question is, I guess, what's your, what's your favorite book? I mean, I, I love to read. I have a lot of favorite books. Um, the one that I read recently, I, I guess this is sort of like a new thing for me, is um, Amanda Gorman. I think, I can't remember, I think it's uh, Call Us What We Carry. Mm -hmm. It's sort of her newest, like, collection of poetry. And I don't normally read poetry, but it's just, it's great. And I, and I think actually for my life lately, because it's been so busy, it's been nice to have these, like, little bite-sized chunks, you know, <laughs> where you can just kind of escape. And and it's just amazing. It's like art and she was. Prose. I haven't I haven't read anything by her, but she was absolutely phenomenal at the inauguration. Absolutely, right. yeah. Was, Highly recommend. Yeah, you know, especially I'll have to check that out. especially if you can't dive deep or have a whole hour to watch. You know, um, you know your my Hulu, shows. Hulu I, shows. I, I watch too many shows. <laughs> so I, I do need to read more. So, what's the best piece of advice you've got? Ooh, okay. It's always a tough question. It is. Yeah. It's the deep question. Yeah. Get it boiled down like yeah. all this advice you've gotten, good and bad. I know. <laughs> yeah, I think, a, a, I don't know if I would call this advice, but it's something I think about a lot um, as I am making decisions. And um, someone told me once that people will not remember you for what you do, but they'll remember you for how you make them feel. And I think that just, I mean, as a parent, you know, as a leader of a, a lab, you know, in the clinic, the patients, you know, the, the people that we interact with on a daily basis, it's not really about what we do. It's about how we make them feel. So it's about relationships. And I, um, I got really into this uh, Gallup poll strengths finder. I don't know if you guys have heard of this. It's kind of like the corporate version of this like Myers-Briggs, you know, that old school oh, yeah. like, personality test. But this is, you know, like designed for corporations and, uh -huh. and how to work better in a workplace culture. And, um, you know, it gives you like one of 35 strengths uh, is your top strength. And, hmm. and I was really surprised. I mean, there's like all these, you know, you think as a scientist, you'd be like a learner or, uh -huh. you know, an achiever or something like that. And my top strength was relator. I was in like relations and I, that's, that's what made me come back to that piece of advice. I'll have to check that out. That's cool. I wonder yeah, what Yeah, It's I'm a 20 interested. minute test, you know, and you have to buy the book to get the code okay. to do the online test. And there's all sorts of questions where you'll be like, this makes no sense, but you're just supposed to go with your gut, you know? Um, Is this like that? That introvert, extrovert. That was the Bristol. That that's the Myers Briggs one, but this doesn't really get it like introvert. Okay. It has strengths like you know, you know, you are a person that like strategizes, or you you know, like to learn and gather input, or you organize, or you you know, you woo people. Um, okay, so um, and then how did you how did you get into sleep medicine? I I mean that's a uh, thinking back about like. Years and years. I think I've always been interested in sleep. I mean, who isn't, right? Um, but academically, um, 
You know, I did my MD PhD at Emory and my PhD was in behavioral neuroscience. Um, and we worked with prairie voles, which are these wild rodents. And so there's a lot of comparative evolution and sort of thinking about how did the species evolve? You know, they're really unusual mammals that are highly social. And so I was really into behavior and evolution. And I, I feel like sleep is kind of the ultimate behavior. You know, how did this evolve in so many different species? Every species we've studied pretty much has some semblance of that. I mean, even just this week in PNAS, they had the paper that came out about spiders who might have REM sleep, you know, um, and again, it's, it's still unknown, but I mean, I think um, it's, it's interesting. It's fascinating. And so when I was a neurology resident, I sought out, you know, some sleep electives and um, it just really fit. It was uh, a nice way to look at patients across the lifespan. Um, and sleep has very different functions depending on if you're young or middle-aged or older. Um, so I think it, it fits really well with kind of everything I've been interested in this, this whole time. Okay. So prairie dogs? Prairie vole. Very different from prairie dogs. They don't bark. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, uh, so it, it went on from there, like the behavioral stuff and then the evolutionary stuff to... To sleep being the ultimate behavioral mystery. And what is it for? And why do we do it? Yeah. And, and I think the answers differ at how, you know, depending on how old you are, what is it for? You know, it's really different what it's for when you're a baby, when you're a kid, when you're a teenager, when you're in your seventies, I skipped over all that middle stuff. Well, it's you know debatable what middle age. <laughs> yes, that's is, right. right. <laughs> it's always ten years more than what I am. That's right. <laughs> yeah, I'm still young. Yeah, we all are. Right. So. right. Okay. It's not the age; it's the mileage. I tell people. But, uh, anyways, um, the mileage. Or the myelin. The, yeah, our, <laughs> that's a neurology. We're, John and I are internists. Oh, that's, that's right. Sorry. That's, that's like way above our head. <laughs> it took me a second. To, yeah, I was like, like myelin. Like I, town? Like, there's a town nearby myelin, M-I-L-A-N. Yeah. But, oh, uh, okay. Oh, I thought it was Milan. <laughs> I call it Milan. Sure, certainly it's a, it was probably Milan, but because it's out here in the Midwest, it's myelin. It's now myelin. Yeah. 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 <laughs> you know. I have, I have one, I have one like Myelin joke that I used to teach uh, MCAT for uh-huh. Kaplan. And so you'd have to talk about the nodes of Ranvier. Mm. And, and Ranvier is an Indian person name. And it's kind of like this evil Indian person. <laughs> oh, geez. So I was like, I was like, every Indian person has an, has an evil uncle named Ranvier. So that's how you remember. <laughs> that's how you remember that's it. That's how I remember the nodes of Ranvier. <laughs> Anyways, I'll never forget no, it. No, you'll never forget it. Not that you would ever forget it. <laughs> That's right. I'm not allowed to. And Cat Cat uh, Kaplan review, of course, just brings shutters to me. So, yeah. so. all right. So, so Shall we get into it. Yeah, we should probably because we're burning time here. I'm <laughs> making Mylan jokes, <laughs> or Mylan jokes that are going over our head. Um, so, what what we really want to talk to you about is is trauma associated sleep disorder. So, I mean, John, why don't you kind of because that's Sure. Yeah. I've been at the VA almost 10 years this fall and we've been seeing these people that your research has kind of touched where they're acting out their dreams quite often. And it's usually associated with PTSD. For those who don't know, this is not really a formally recognized disease, I would say, like uh, disorder, not formally recognized, but it's something we see in veterans and trauma victims quite often that after the event, they will act out their dreams or nightmares, you know, perpetually, not per, well, not all the time, but they will act them out thereafter and it can go on for decades. Mm-hmm. And um, it's, uh, it can be pervasive. It's not the same thing as REM behavioral disorder, uh, which often sets in uh, later in life, but it has some features that are similar. That's right. There's a lot of overlap. And what did you see in your clinical observations that kind of got you to think about this? Anything different? Yeah, I, I, I think I'm seeing very similar features to what you describe. And actually, when we talk to VA sleep clinicians all across the country, all of this anecdotal, um, you know, case stuff mm-hmm. is the same. It really is. It's exactly what you describe. And um, these guys are younger um, and it's often a 
traumatic event that uh, causes recurrent nightmares of the same content, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but not everyone with PTSD nightmares acts out their dreams. It's right. only a subset. And so I've um, been in a healthy debate, I think, with other people who, uh, clinicians and scientists who are studying this. It's not just me, but, you know, Vince Mislowich. Sure. Nope. Main. <laughs> yeah. Know yeah. my name, yeah. 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 Um, you know, and... I, I think the jury is still out as to whether it truly is a separate sleep disorder that is distinct from REM sleep behavior disorder, idiopathic RBD. Um, the, I guess the most parsimonious explanation could be that um, those that have PTSD nightmares that have REM sleep without atonia, I mean, that's abnormal physiology. The mar- most parsimonious explanation is that that is the same thing as idiopathic RBD. We don't know. There's been no longitudinal studies of these folks, you know, over the years to see how many of them phenoconvert to Parkinson's or a Parkinsonism. That's a good point. I think that's, I think clinically for me, when I see a 30, 35 year old who has loss of remetonia and has clinical features of RBD, I don't really know what to tell them. That's right. Right. It's like the data is like, oh, within seven to 10 years, you could convert to yeah. an alpha synecinopathy, but you're probably not. So it's like, what? That's right. And the data, you know, um, the meta-analyses that have been out from all these longitudinal cohort studies that have been you know, following people for 30 years, they all start with folks that are civilians who are 50 or older. And so that's where they come up with numbers like, you know, you have a 96% you know, phenoconversion rate after 14 years, mm. you know, that's the average, that's the number that oh, they, which is staggering. Yeah. Right. But I mean, it's, you can't really, it doesn't generalize to someone who's 30. Yeah. Um, but that doesn't mean that someone who's 30 won't, you know, convert 50 years from now. There's been case reports of idiopathic RBD where the, the latency between RBD and Parkinson's diagnosis is 50 years, five zero. That's a Brad Beauvais. Wow neurology article. Wow. Um, I didn't realize that. I, we always kind of use the 10 year, ah, you know, it's up in the next decade, you know, you, you're at higher risk. Yeah. I think it really depends on the age, your age. Mm-hmm. But again, those studies haven't been rigorously done. Um, I just kind of tell everyone, we'll just continue to monitor. And if you start having features, then yeah. we'll, we'll do something about it. Cause there's no, nothing we can really preemptively do anyways, but there's always the there, argument or yeah, no. I mean, I, we'll you know, there. yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah we, we, we could go there. I mean, I, I before we get into that, I do want to say that there may be people at higher risk, you know, mm-hmm. so those with trauma associated sleep disorder, you know, if they have TBI and PTSD, that may actually synergize to increase your risk. And the reason why I say that is we actually do have epidemiological evidence that TBI and PTSD synergize to increase risk of later Parkinson's. In veterans, and that's just independent yeah. of the RBD Rizwa step, right? I mean, it's just you know TBI PTSD, and then decades later Parkinson's, and so it's not that much of a stretch that you know that subset might also have REM sleep without atonia somewhere in between, right? Yeah. Um, the question of what to do. Yeah, what to do. What to do? Um, you know, there's uh, some emerging evidence that. Um, cardiovascular exercise can be neuroprotective in early Parkinson's. Um, And, you know, taking that a step earlier, you know, RBD, if you consider that early Parkinson's, like, should you have this, you know, aggressive cardiovascular exercise regimen? Um, And they've even looked at um, the number of minutes and the the heart rate, you know, and things like that. So there's been a couple of prospective studies, a lot of retrospective studies. There's, you know, Mediterranean diet and caffeine, a lot of those softer things that have been, you know, retrospective, but I think um, could be studied and also don't really present a lot of harm. Mm -hmm. You know, if if someone is anxious and looking for something to do, it's not bad to talk through some of those options with the caveat that the level of evidence isn't there yet. I I think one of the things we struggle with is, you know, I'm thinking back through the cases over the years and these younger patients were getting a lot of home sleep tests on patients. So the opportunity to see dream enactment behavior is there. And then even when you do get a level one, it's hit or miss whether you see it on that study. So there's such a huge opportunity to miss mm-hmm. the diagnosis um, that I can't think that I, like, you know, when I was reading some of these articles that you had, had written, um, I was like, you know, I can't say I've seen a lot of, people during sleep studies act out in non-REM where 
didn't more so look like confusional arousals or something kind of more affiliated with uh, obstructive event. And that's mostly because mm-hmm. we rarely do sleep studies on people who don't are just purely there for dream enactment. It's usually like their sleep apnea and we happen to find out, oh, you've got dream enactment. You know, it's not something that comes up with primary care. A lot of these people feel like it's just normal. Like this is like, yeah, I've been doing that for yep. 10, 20, every decade of my yeah. life. So, you know, it's, I was, it, your article got me thinking about, you know, presentation and non-REM and REM and how that might look differently. Does it look differently? Uh, do they act differently? I mean, is there any sort of subtype there? Because when I was like trying to classify, okay, are these two different things I'm dealing with? You know, because how you might treat it, someone who's yeah. doing it in non-REM might be different than how you treat it when it's in REM. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, you you guys know, like, you know, if somebody's doing it in non-REM, we tend to think of it as benign. Mm-hmm. It's not linked to synucleopathy. Oh, really? Okay. It's a parasomnia that just like in kids, um, non-REM parasomnias and PTSD nightmares. There've been a number of studies that show that they arise in both non-REM and REM. Right. Um, Which people don't realize, actually. A lot of people... That's not really pointed out very well. Yeah, I would still argue that, um, you know, in REM, you're supposed to have paralysis of your skeletal muscles, you know, uh, except for your diaphragm and your eye movements. Right. And if you don't have that, that's abnormal. Whereas in non-REM, you don't have that paralysis. And so if you see REM sleep without atonia, I still postulate that that's abnormal. And mm-hmm. whether it's because you have a brewing synucleinopathy mm-hmm. or whether it's because you have something else abnormal about your circuits, you know, being disinhibited because you're hyper aroused during sleep, you know, maybe your amygdala and your locus ceruleus are overactive during sleep, mm-hmm. your sympathetic nervous system. I don't know what the mechanism is, but it's abnormal. <laughs> so, so that's kind of how I <laughs> think of good. it. It also seems like patients that have these, you know, non, I've thought about these nightmares and patients being non-REM and REM, mm-hmm. you know, it's like, what does the, does the content differ between those two stages? Because non-REM is not supposed to be as formed of a mm-hmm. wealth. It's not as clear of a dream or something. And then REM is supposed to be more consolidated of a dream. Um, but I'm, I don't know what the literature is on that anymore, but I think it's blurring. Okay. Yeah. yeah. But I mean, I do think classically, yeah, you're, you're right that, you know, in non-REM, you're supposed to be harder to arouse. You don't wake up as quickly. You have more sleep inertia and, and your dream content is more blurred and mm-hmm. maybe but, your dream recall is less. Right. That was what I was going to say is the recall would be. Is that why, to, I, is that why we don't get a very good history from patients on when this happens in non-REM? Well, I think that I've seen patients who I feel like they're telling me they have both mm-hmm. in that, like I have, I have nightmares and I know I've had nightmares because I wake up and I remember the dream. And then, but you know, then it's like, I have nightmares every night, but I only do that a couple. And I'm like, well, what are you doing? If you only know that you have right. them twice per week, then what's ha- like, how do you know you're having nightmares the other? Because my, my spouse has, right. you know, right has there. to wake me because I'm moaning and, and I, I don't remember any of this, but I'm, I'm doing stuff. I'm, you know, I'm moving. I'm very hyperactive. I'm, you know, I'm in distress while I'm sleeping. Yeah, that's but exactly I don't it. know, and I and I wonder maybe that's that the non-REM you're missing. Yeah, yeah. It's hard I, to know. I, I think recall too is just so subjective, right? Yeah, I mean, the number and maybe that you recall one time, yeah. but not the other three times in the same night. Right. You know, and then it's um, and and they have done some. You know, Isabella Arnulf, Arnulf has done some really interesting studies um, with her team where they wake people up in either non-REM or REM and ask mm-hmm. them, what do you remember? Mm-hmm. Um, but th- I mean, that's really the best we <laughs> <Right>. have. <laughs> but right. It's hard to know beyond that, you know. Yeah, it's, that's the, you, yeah, that involves me being at the lab in the middle of the night. <laughs> Which is not going to happen. <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, yeah. the, and, and the, the, the presence of non-REM nightmares differentiates kind of trauma related sleep disorder from idiopathic RBD, right? Kind of that's in RBD, you would only have REM nightmares versus, and if we're saying trauma associated, trauma related sleep disorder is its own phenomenon, then that would be kind of one differentiating feature between the two. Is that? I mean, I think Vince Mislowich and Anne Germain would say that REM sleep without atonia is a, is a feature of Uh, trauma associated sleep disorder. But again, this is not a, hard and fast disorder in the ICSD-4 yet. Yeah, no. um, 
at all. In fact, it's still very much under debate. But what they would say is that, you know, trauma associated sleep disorder, you have recurrent nightmares from an inciting event. That's not something you see in our IRBD. Uh, and you have autonomic hyperarousal during each of these episodes, like you have tachycardia mm-hmm. and maybe uh, tachypnea. Um, and you have REM sleep without atonia and then actual movement, mm-hmm. violent movement and vocalizations. Whereas an idiopathic RBD, you don't have an inciting event. Um, you don't always have the same nightmare. You right. Might, um, and you don't always have autonomic hyperarousal. Yeah, the the people with RBD teams tend to have just random, like, you know, like, did you have trauma? Did that inspire this? Like, no, I just have random, if I'm fighting people or being chased. Mm-hmm. They're not, it's not something that happened in real life. Yeah, yeah, which, you know, that's classic RBD. It makes you wonder, okay, how could trauma 50 years ago in Vietnam be, you know, the same thing? And it's just separated by 50 years from normal RBD. Like, I... It, it strikes me as it's it's different than not some sort of like um, neurodegeneration associated with Parkinson's. But I have uh, plenty of um, patients who have had PTSD for many years who are now in their 70s mm-hmm. and didn't act out until recently. Right, exactly. And so, but that, I mean, I think the, that's, it's not a black or white thing. Yeah. It's, I think they are very much at risk for and you still you know, wonder if it's a recall I bias. I wonder if there's something underlying genetically or, or yeah. something that yeah. predisposes these people. You know, there, there's going to be a subset who have just trauma associated and they don't convert. There's going to be a subset that has, you know, the PTSD and then they have mm-hmm. RBD in their 70s. And then, yeah, I'm sure, you know, I, I think you're right. You know, studies need to be done, but obviously there are going to be people who have tried that are going to there, there has, there has to be a, a subset. We just don't know. They're going to get it anyway. There are, there are, gonna, it's multiple hits. Yeah. I mean, my, my hypothesis is that it's multiple hits. It's like, you know, age is a risk factor mm-hmm. exposures. We know about agent orange and pesticides right. and like manganese welding and all sorts of, you know, the same risk factors for Parkinson's are the same risk factors for RBD. Yeah. That's and good then point. genetics, right. You know, like. You, you, I, you I wonder if like the burn pit exposure now is going to be right. something with, with this generation of veterans that are the last ones to serve in Vietnam, they had toxic exposure to, to, to Asian orange. Mm-hmm. And this generation is kind of the burn pits. So I, I, I do wonder. Yeah. I ask everybody now and they're in my history about their burn pit exposure. It's just good to catalog. And at some point, maybe someone could do a retrospective chart review of that. <laughs> Are you looking in my direction? Yes. <laughs> looking at you, John. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> um, well, so now, do you know if anyone's got any other treatments that they've tried um, beyond uh, exercise? And I'm only telling you the ones that uh, there's actual, I think, evidence. Let's face, let's face for... it, nobody wants to exercise. <laughs> we want pills. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's, it's hard enough to get someone who... There's who, a lot of failed pill studies. Yeah. And I don't think we should even really waste time on that. You know, we get, we, you know, the problem, one of the opportunities, well, not opportunities, but one of the things that the VA is like, you know, you, you try, even for RBD, you try what's recommended and then it doesn't work. And then you're like, okay, let's let's try something else, you know? And, um, you know, even with RBD, I've had good results with clonazepam, with RBD, um, mixed results with melatonin. Mm -hmm. And then like trauma associated obviously i've tried alpha blockers to try to treat the underlying um uh sleep just the other the the nightmare which i've had decent decent results but but again we get back to i feel like sometimes a recall bias of like nobody's ever asked this guy about his nightmares before and and sometimes the the history will be a moving target they've Mm -hmm. been doing it for 50 years Mm -hmm. but the wife just started complaining 10 years ago more it's 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 very, hard, so hard. shoddy sometimes, um, but I've had decent results with alpha blockers. Um, What's kind of your um, 
Yeah, uh, I've had the, a very similar experience to John where clonazepam is reasonably efficacious, but then there's all those side effects and you right. don't want to give them to the 80 year olds. And we try melatonin on everyone, but it probably only works in about half the people mm. um, is, is my experience. Um, Prazosin is interesting. I'm glad you mentioned that because um, that's a drug that, um, you know, Elaine Peskind and Murray Raskind in the Pacific Northwest at the mm -hmm. VA in Puget Sound in Seattle, they've been doing these trials for decades now showing um, that it improves PTSD symptoms and sleep and nightmares. And now there's emerging evidence that it may actually modulate the glymphatic system. Oh the CNS, CSF glymphatic system. Mm -hmm. So, you know, which is more active during sleep and one of its functions may be to clear sort of these toxins or toxic protein aggregates. Really neuroprotective. Yeah. Almost. Yeah. And, and so there's this idea that's brewing that I think we're going to test very soon, hmm. uh, whether prazosin is actually prevents or is neuroprotective in some way of synucleinopathy. So I always figured that by blocking the kind of the, racing heart and the sweating and all those symptoms that like people didn't have such a reaction to the nightmare and that it didn't get kind of get carried away. Cause they're blocking the adrenergic. Mm -hmm. Yes. Mm -hmm. Right. But, but I mean that, that the alpha blockers are tricky because the receptors are everywhere mm -hmm. and you're not sure you can't, it's hard to isolate one organ system that's affecting. That's it's really interesting. I've never heard that, that Prazosin might, Prazosin specifically or adrenergic blockers as a whole. So, uh, we're our preliminary data is in Prazosin specifically, but there is a JAMA Neurology article that was just published in 2021 by an it's an epidemiological study looking at alpha alpha one adrenergic blockers, the class and how it lowers risk of eventual diagnosis of Parkinson's disease. So wow. this is a retrospective, but you know, like hundreds so of thousands. BPH is protective <laughs> for Parkinson's disease. No, I'm just kidding. But uh, no, treated BPH. Treated BPH. <laughs> BPH by well, itself. Right. I mean, There's no good. You, know, no. you mean the the uh, the the, the prostate enlargement? The yeah. yes. Let me make sure you for the public here, making yeah. sure they yeah. know what we're talking about. Um, um it, what's the what's the mechanism or is it, or is it the glymphatic system is modulated by alpha or adrenergic receptor? Yeah. The mechanism that um, they think is going on is that, you know, this overactive norepinephrine, you know, surge is creates maybe more of like a wake like state in the brain and that blocks CSF oh. glymphatics hmm. and prazosin kind of tamps down that. And then maybe it allows you to kind of. It's supposed to promote REM in some cases I've read. Oh, you know, but maybe you know, it's, it's not well studied. I mean, it is shutting off the norepinephrine, right? So it's blocking. The... Interesting. Yeah. And you say you're not neurologists. Well, <laughs> that's, that's the I'm limit. <laughs> don't, don't, don't dig too deep here. Yeah, It's about the level of so, my, my is, neurobio. Yeah. So. As I say, that's an old flickering neuron. That I, <laughs> anything at all. Because we have to retake the sleep boards. Something so. called CA1s. And then there's, uh, what, what else? Hippocampal. Yeah. That's uh, good. That's see. good. It's because I had to write a book chapter on sleep, emotion, and memory. But seeing, but seeing such like a different response in treatment. You know, it always makes me wonder, am I treating different pathologies, mm -hmm. right? Why is it responding to clonazepam or not melatonin or not alpha blockers or none of the three? It's very frustrating. Uh, <laughs> it is extremely uh, You can't predict, you know, so depending on the patient's comfort and the presentation you're, and risk yeah. factors, you're kind of picking one of the, for me, you're picking one of the three. Not so much for pure RBD. It's pretty much, I'm not using alpha blockers for pure RBD, but. Um, yeah, I've had some patients um, that responded to Premipexol. Hmm. Um, strange, and there's a small, you know, case series where uh, they're all small, you know, where they where they've tried that as third line for RBD. Um, are you gonna? No, I just. Me, me and John always harp against dopamine agonists. I hate them. Because, don't worry. No, don't, don't yeah. ever start them. <laughs> Do not ever start them. I just, I just tweeted out something the other day and yesterday, and I was like, please. Take do not. Up. Yeah, I, I literally said, just an FYI, please do not treat asymptomatic PLMs 
Yes. With medication, especially with dopamine agonists, but because I will see them back in clinic as idiopathic, restless legs. Oh, so, right. We, that's right. And then they'll augment and yes. be the bane of your existence. Right. <laughs> so, you know, but then how much of that is like the association with Parkinson's and, you know, it, and then on top of it, though, sometimes you're just like, I got nothing. Let's try something different. And yeah. you do. And, yeah. and sometimes it works. Um, yeah. I still have some people that I, I'm like, look at, you're at the, I don't know what else to do. They've been on like, they've even tried like Seroquel. Like, you know, um, I have an individual who he's still so disturbed at night and he's compliant with CPAP. He's, we've studied him, studied him, studied him. He went on doxazosin at the max dose. Um, and all these things kind of helped incrementally, melatonin, clonazepam, but never could, could really get it, mm-hmm. get it under control. And I'm, I've had a couple patients on Zyrem, mm-hmm. but that's, you know, an activation barrier that's yeah. extremely well, high. Yeah. Um, and it's like, who, how many people are comfortable doing that? You know, probably you look no at one. private sector, it's like, I can't even get private sector to put them on Prazosin, mm-hmm. you yeah. know? So they're like, whoa, you know, it's a blood pressure med. You know, it's yeah. like, I do think that we're a little bit lucky to be practicing the VA where we have the yeah. ability to kind of yeah. try some more things. Well, yeah. Definitely like in the private sector, it, that would be. Yeah. But we, we also, I mean, we have the time to do a good discussion. This is the risk benefits yeah. off-label use. And you document that and that helps, but you know, it's ultimately, I think it comes down to like mm-hmm. shared decision-making of the patient, which we always do. But when you're in these, you know, what, we've done all the recommended stuff. What's, what's, what do you, what do you think about trying this? We've, so I haven't tried the, uh, Premipexol, but that's interesting. I wouldn't <laughs> stay away from it. No, we we have generally speaking. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I don't remember if uh, Michigan is uh, is cannabis legal here. Yes. Okay. Is. So can I, I can I talk you. about this? Absolutely. Okay. Please do. I was just going to ask you because I you know it's been legal in Oregon for a long time, but you know at the VA we're not really allowed to recommend it or prescribe it. Right. Um, Same here. Yeah, but I've had a number of patients just anecdotally try it Mm -hmm. um, for RBD, and I have about six now where um, they have said that it works better than anything I've prescribed. Hmm. Um, But it has to be a certain strain. Right. (laughs) And like, I don't know too much about the strains, but anyway, that, you know, there's like, you know, the. Do you know, you don't know which strain? I do. I do. Well, just from what they've told me, you know, um, but uh, in the Indica strain, as opposed to the, I think there's a Sativa. Sativa? It's not that one. That's the only two I know of. Yeah. 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 The Indica strain, you know, and I would love to do like a case series or something about this, but I mean, I probably can't publish it under the auspices of the VA. (laughs) Yeah. Marijuana is so hit miss i feel like for sleep. no pun intended right yeah <laughs> seriously i didn't yeah <laughs> i just some people are like it works for everything and some people are like it doesn't work for anything and it's yeah like, wow, I don't. yeah i think i had my first guy recently that was like yeah I, I, I use edibles for the nightmares and it helps but i can't afford to be on med- edible. Yeah. right yeah. yeah and so i was like well uh any have you had any success with any of like i think some anti-seizure medications to get used sometimes like the carbamazepine or the I have not tried those what about you guys I haven't I haven't gotten that far yet I feel like I'm always harping on treating the sleep apnea because again we're always testing people with sleep apnea as John had mentioned earlier I don't think I have de novo like just blank just RBD um so it's that that's rare um but absolutely, it's important to treat the sleep apnea. I've had yeah. many patients where the RBD goes away after they are on, you know, CPAP. And then other, you know, alcohol, you you know, yes. lifestyle alcohol. factors. Alcohol. They're on, a lot of these guys are on antidepressants too, which mm-hmm. can kind of cloud mm-hmm. the picture. And I mean, cause how it. much does that, you know, we always say it and, you know, oh, he's on Effexor. Oh, he's on, you know, and it's like, oh, yeah, well, I saw this because they're on Effexor. And it's like, is it really that you, much? You know, it's hard to know, it's right? Because you have to stop it and repeat the study. And then you go by historical and they've been on it for a decade. I had one recently, a younger guy who had clear REM without atonia. Um, and I think it was trauma associated sleep disorder. So I, you know, uh, treated it as so, but the, you, I tried to take a, an antidepressant history and he's like, wow, I've been on this, you know, for a long time, but I've also had that for a long time. So in the end it was like, it could be. You know, but uh, it's we're not very hard to get a clear tr- trigger for that. And I, I think in the field, um, again, this is sort of just how the thinking has evolved and there's no clear publications on this. But 
it used to be thought that antidepressants caused secondary RBD and mm-hmm. it's like not the same RBD that's going to progress to synuclonopathy. But mm-hmm. there's some folks in the field now that think that it just simply unmasks something that's abnormal pathophysiology that would have happened later. I see. So the antidepressant critics are going to think, though, that it's causing the the degeneration eventually. It's not mm-hmm. unmasking; it's the cause, it's the culprit. Oh, the, the, the new, one. the new. To give them their credit, you know. Yeah, if you think, if, the, the, if yeah. you're thinking, you know, along with everything else negative that antidepressants now cause. Well, they they you know they do have their side effects. You know, they're not a life transplant. You know, but the uh, drug companies aren't going to want to hear it. No, no. They... <laughs> <laughs> um, what what's kind of your focus in terms of? like research in the, in the area. Yeah. I mean, you know, so we, we talked so much about like how little is known about these links between TBI and PTSD, RBD and Parkinson's. And we see this all the time in people. And I think the key is going to be bringing this back into like an animal model so we can determine causality and really tease apart like the brain mechanisms, you know, is it some totally separate you know, hyperarousal circuit that's causing RISWA that doesn't accelerate synucleinopathy, we can test that in mice. We have synuclein transgenic mice, you know, that we can do neurotrauma on and record their REM sleep without atonia. Wow. Um, and so I think that's going to be key. And then we're, we're layering on top of that glymphatics. So we're going to be looking at does neurotrauma um, impair glymphatic function, and is that what mediates this march down the synucleinopathy road? And then, are there drugs that can modulate glymphatics like prazosin? And we'll do all this in mice first. Well, how do you traumatize them? A traumatized stereotaxic? Or do you do? Are you doing stereotaxic? Yeah, yeah. So it's a really highly controlled, you know, traumatic brain injury okay. through the cortex, and then we have this, you know, very kind of highly controlled way of creating PTSD, PTSD-like phenotype. Huh. Um, I mean, the pluses and minuses of mice versus humans, I mean, in humans, like no two injuries are the same right. and the heterogeneity is part of life. And, right. you know, we, you're never going to have such a highly controlled situation. But I think, you know, if you can demonstrate causality in a mouse in this ideal situation, then it's plausible that in some people that could probably... So we have to wait a few years for that to shake out, huh? Yeah, that'll be a, f- a couple of years. Yeah, yeah. Right. We are imaging glymphatics in humans now. Um, it's not published yet, but we have a few MRI sequences that uh, we're developing um, that will look at that in vivo in the human brain. The glymphatic theory is pretty new. I mean, I feel like... It's new. There was this article in Sleep about it in 2017 or 2013. 20, yeah. 2013. Yeah. yeah. But I mean, not 10, less yeah. than 10 years. I think it's really interesting. And I think it it makes sense, um, especially in in regards to sleep and how people with insomnia or, or poor sleep might be more set up to have Alzheimer's or other kind of disorders with plaque formation. So it would be. And again, I mean, it's probably multiple hits, right? right? It's not every insomniac is going to get right, Alzheimer's, absolutely. right? Yeah. Or like, you know, me, I was on the red eye last night. And yeah. I'm like thinking about all the plaques that are forming. I mean, no. <laughs> <laughs> but I think, you know, it'd be, it'd be, I mean, if we can find a, med- I mean, a medication that can kind of help that out, that, that aspect of it, um, that'd be phenomenal. So. Yeah. Prazosin, I got my fingers crossed. Yeah, we'll see. <laughs> John's like, all my patients will be fine because everyone's on Prazosin. <laughs> a lot of them are on alpha blockers, but yeah. what is it? Was, is it, is it, was it the uh, melatonin receptor agonist? Is it Rosarem, they called it? Right. I had a, I had a, one of my teachers, Dr. Sharani, suggest, you know, I, guess, I think it's like, suggest trying to treat RBD with that once. Hmm. But I don't know how much, I don't know how expensive it's, it's definitely out there. I mean, but if melatonin works, then the pure receptor agonists should work even better. Um, but uh, I've never tried that. Have you, have you tried any of the? I, I don't think it's on formulary at the VA, which makes no. it hard for us to prescribe, especially when melatonin. Remelteon. Is that it? That's it. I if, think so. I've never used Remelteon it. Remelteon and Tassimelteon are the two. Is it? Yeah. yeah. Lazarum might be the brand name. Right. Well, right. Yeah. Right. And they're approved yeah. for like non-24. Non-24. 
Yep, non twenty four. Which you know, how many patients do you have that are non twenty four? Kathy finds them. One. You have one. <laughs> I had one. I had a sighted individual Ooh, with non twenty four that I actually presented as a case at sleep when I was a fellow. Ooh, so that was interesting. Um, so that was my my one non twenty four. That's one more than me. Yeah. <laughs> um, but we actually, when 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 Remelteon first came out, I had a I had a psychiatrist who did ICU rounds. Um, when I was a, when I was a resident and he put, he just started putting everyone on Rosarum for ICU, like delirium and sleep. Mm-hmm. I was like, this is not really the right medication. <laughs> Did it work? No. Of course. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, He's I was trying know. though. You it, didn't know, right? Yeah. I mean, but did. like Seroquel works in the ICU or like Geodon. Vitamin oh, H. Right. Yeah. Vitamin H. Vitamin H. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Haldol for those who don't don't know. For those who don't know. But yeah, Rosarum, I don't know. I had many more calls when I was a Yeah, I've never seen anyone use it. When I was a resident for ICU for for sedation. Yeah. Um, I thought it was a neat idea. I was like, oh, okay, well. Yeah, I mean, I guess. Theoretically. I don't, I haven't, I haven't seen any studies looking at it. No, I haven't. Again, maybe because it's new and it's probably not available everywhere. Not many people are bold enough to try that either. That's another thing, right? Mm -hmm. Like you have to be pretty out of options Mm -hmm. to to just, well, you know, this should work on theory, but I don't have any actual clinical examples for you. So, but if it, I mean, I guess, you know, if melatonin is only 30, you know, 40 to 50% effective, you wouldn't, I don't know, would you expect the, the agonist to be more? You'd need a patient who, uh, was responsive on melatonin. Right. Mm-hmm. Take them off of it, and then give them yeah. Remelteon, and then compare. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Who's gonna do that? <laughs> mm, uh, these guys, some of these guys, you know, like to roll the dice. You know? <laughs> I, I don't know. <laughs> so, I mean, I had one patient who was convinced the doxazosin was working. This was the complex patient I talked mm. about earlier. We we're at the maximum dose, and he just uh, he just decided to. Double it up way past that. He took 32 milligrams. Wow. The pharmacy is like, we can't write this. I'm like, I'm not asking you to, but uh, I can't stop him. If he's got a prescription, he can do it. I'm not going to be sitting at his house preventing him from doing what he did. It didn't make any difference at that point. We'd already probably maximized everything. So he went back to the former dose, but he was desperate. He's just looking for anything. So. I mean, prazosin, sometimes you need really high doses. Right. Yeah. I'd heard about that. Uh, Someone told me once that, you know, uh, that the Raskin recommended just going as high as you needed to. So they have patients over 50, uh, over 50 milligrams. Yeah. I'm sure the pharmacist who's filling that prescription is just, just flagging like that. Why? Yeah. <laughs> I feel like in general is like, you know, six to eight almost is, you know, what they say. You we don't get we much... start at one, but like, it's like on the 12, yeah. 16. Yeah. I, I never saw much benefit after 12 in that 16. I was like, Phew. You know, we're not mm-hmm. making any, any any incremental gains here. So a lot of patients can't tolerate the blood pressure uh, drop. Right. right, right. I do all. Everyone asks. They're like, "Isn't that a blood pressure?" I'm like, "Yeah, it's not the greatest blood pressure medication." But I mean, obviously, if you get right. to a high enough dose, it's going to cause you to have, yeah. you know, yeah. effects for blood pressure. Because I think I think 25 to 50 is a that's a blood pressure. You know, that's an antihypertensive. That's, that's definitely that, up that's there. A, yeah. That's a dose that we You're would You're stopping your other blood pressure medications yeah. at that point. <laughs> you know, one, four, eight, not really. That's sub-therapeutic for hypertension. So, yeah. I think so. I haven't used it. Well, I've seen some people on tw- two, twice a day. Is it? Okay. It's, I mean, I, just depends on how they respond. It's yeah. not, and it's got a short half-life. It's like six hours. So, you know, you'd have to do it twice a day. And you know how good people are remembering to take blood pressure pills twice a day. Did you ever use clonidine? Because that's more of a centrally acting. I have uh, heard of people blocker. using that. And I know they use it a lot in kids for um, sort of like hyperactivity mm-hmm. and calming them down at night. And so I, I have not tried that for RBD. What so about you guys? I've seen it used a few times uh, by psychiatry, but because of the internal medicine background over the years is like... I, I saw people have wild blood pressure mm-hmm. swings when they've missed their clonidine. Yep. And so I kind of, I never wanted to kind of get in that situation where if they missed a dose, we could prevent, provoke, I'm sorry, provoke a stroke or something. So it's just kind of like, eh, we're not going to mess with that, you know, like, but. I, I, I just, I wonder because you, you know, brought up just with the glymphat, you know, if, you know, prazosin might be protective and that's more of a peripherally acting alpha blocker versus clonidine which is a more centrally acting alpha blocker if there would be even more of a benefit 
Yeah, I don't know. I mean, that's a good question. Is, isn't clonidine alpha two autoreceptor? Oh god! Oh, sorry. I should not have asked. I this. should not have asked. asked. Yeah. We're gonna delete this one. I should, I should know one. this. Yeah. I think so. I, you might be. We'll have Deleted. To, yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure. We'll have to add that in the show notes. What what quantity is? Yeah. We'll just link to up. I'm not gonna open the phone up and Google it right now. Yeah. You know. No, that's a good question. I don't. I don't know. Uh, is is the answer? So maybe that's again the receptor is is different. Alpha one versus alpha two. You're right. Now I want to talk about branched chain amino acids. Mm, we're ready. We're I, I thought that was a cool study. Um, and it actually came up uh, in clinic recently uh, after reading your paper. Can, before we, can you just kind of introduce a little bit of like what the work you've done is? Yeah, sure. Um, so I, um, the branched chain amino acids that John's talking about are leucine, isoleucine, and valine. And they're essential amino acids that are only able to be acquired through the diet. Um, and the reason why they are of interest in neuroscience is because the three of those together um, are the precursors to glutamate, um, de novo glutamate synthesis in the brain. So glutamate, you know, the main excitatory neurotransmitter. Um, and it comes from these three amino acids, which you can only get in the diet, right? And so if you think about, you know, um, the ratios of excitation to inhibition, you know, at, in certain circuits, um, all of that's very highly dependent on, you know, your intake of BCAAs. Um, glutamate goes to GABA, mm -hmm. you know, and that like in, in the biochemical pathway. And so really like all of this is coming from what you eat. Mm -hmm. um, and so we uh, first decided to study BCAAs as a potential therapy in these mice with traumatic brain injury or mouse model. Mm -hmm. um, these mice had persistent sleep-wake disturbances and we saw that the orexin neurons that are deep in the hypothalamus were less excitable. They were there, they weren't dead, but they just were like not able to be excited as well. And they were releasing less orexin. Hmm. So they weren't like at the levels of narcolepsy where you would expect to have cataplexy, but it was just like about a 25% decrease. And we thought that was just enough to cause, you know, this phenotype that you see in TBI where people just can't quite stay awake, like, or be like fully alert for long periods of time. And they just have brain fog and mm -hmm. then their um, nighttime sleep is fragmented. And they have insomnia. So, yeah. So we gave the mice uh, BCAAs in the drinking water two days after they got their traumatic brain injury and then, you know, looked at brain sections, looked at orexin neuron um, hyperexcitability and orexin levels, and uh, it rescued all of that. And then the mice actually were able to stay awake. Wow. So. And that's what inspired the. Uh, the human study. The human yeah, study. yeah. Yeah. Which so. is also cool. Um should we, you guys tell us more about the human study? I can. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I just want to also just say that the mouse work that I summarized in like three sentences was like 13 years worth of work. <laughs> and, <laughs> we did this. We put, we put ranch and amino acids yeah, in there and, and then done. Boom, like, they're fixed. Within like three days, it might work. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's what, that, that was a great uh, introduction to the study, the study I was referencing. Cause I was, I, I did, was not familiar with the research behind that. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, like, who thought of this and how, right. Right. Like why did someone just suddenly think, Hey, we're going to stick some amino acids in here and fix, <laughs> fix people TBIs. So right. Right. It's actually so it's, perfect lead in. Yeah. A hundred percent based on the mouse work. It, and then, so we, this, the paper that you, um, the study that we just published is our first ever in human, just kind of feasibility pilot study. Is this even going to are people even going to be able to drink this stuff, you know? And, Apparently. And, yes. <laughs> well, I mean, that, it's challenging. It's it's a lot. So, you know, the mouse dose that we figured out um, that they needed is equivalent to about 30 to 60 grams uh, a day in humans, mm -hmm. which, you know, I think about like 60 grams is a lot. It's not just like. Not, not yeah. for bodybuilders. You know? It is. That's true. But, you know, like if you're thinking yeah. about, oh, I'll just eat a little more fish, right. you know, or a little more steak. No, it's like, that's not enough. You need like. Need a, a lot of, yeah, you need a supplement. Yeah. And I was, so like your, your, the paper, um, bef before the listeners, like I get lost in the protein world here, but, um, your paper, they're doing 30 milligrams twice a day. Of, grams. Uh-huh. 30 grams. Sorry. Yeah. And it was just the branch chain amino acids. It wasn't include, you know, cause if you ate an egg, there's, 
Obviously, there's a lot of other stuff. There's in there. a lot like of other a protein shake. It's yeah, everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so exactly. Not They're not pure sources. And in your paper, it's pure. You mentioned that the the what you're supplementing, the concentrations went up, and other concentrations went down. Was it within the within the brain? Well, the, since this was human, we were just checking I mean, blood. The blood the yeah, blood. but in okay. in the mice, we did look in the brain uh-huh. of the other amino acids. Um, you wouldn't yeah. think there'd be a trade. I, I wouldn't think it'd be like you know, oh, you're putting other amino acids in. Therefore, the other concentration has to be lower. I think it, it does make sense when you think about how um, amino acids are transported yeah, into the brain. Right. But, you know, with the blood, I'm not sure. I mean, mm-hmm. and again, the blood is like a one time point. We weren't able to sample around the clock, like after they ate it or something like that. It really was just like pre and post three weeks of BCAs. Um, is there a commercially available product now? Yeah. I mean, they sell it at GNC. You know, it's extremely bitter. Mm. So um, that's a challenge that we encountered in the feasibility pilot study. And we're doing a larger RCT now of 200 subjects. And we have been working with food chemists, which was a field I never knew existed before. But, you know, to try to disguise this extremely Mm -hmm. bitter flavor, you know, and you need to somehow get 60 grams of it in a shake um, and be able to drink it. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. Um, the, the control protein, uh, is we use rice protein, which is, has 60 grams of protein, but it's very low in the BCAs. So you were asking about the different. Well, yeah. Is that, was like, what's it, what was there a, when I was looking at these products that are available, was there a ratio of, you know, they'll, 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 they'll be like two, one, one, mm-hmm. or there'll be three. That's the one two. we use. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. the ratio. Yeah. Is that the, was, what was the, is the two, the valine or. I don't know. I think isoleucine, but Maybe. I'm not done. That's fine. It. <laughs> it's just, it's just a, it's just a ratio I noticed because some of them have different ratios. You should, yeah. you should talk to the makers of Muscle Milk. Their, their uh-huh. protein tastes good. Oh, okay. <laughs> but some of the reviews, people are saying like it's just, it's like some people said it was tasteless. Like it'd be like, you know, usually protein shakes are not. No, they're not. Not berry lemonade. They're usually like, you know, chocolate, chocolate, vanilla. stuff like that. But all of these were that are that I saw that were commercially available were like. Raspberry lemonade, blueberry lemonade. They're like kind of like more like a, like a soft drink. Citrus. Mix. Yeah. yeah. yeah rather than anything, you know, not your, not your typical whey protein sort of chalky, awful tasting. Yeah. <laughs> we'll have to ask the food chemist about know. that. But I do think there's something about the acidity and the citrus that hides like certain bitter flavors. Oh, that's I see. What that's me. where it's coming from. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Who knows? But the commercially available stuff, some of its stuff had like caffeine in it. And I was like, oh, great. This is all we need, you know, <laughs> uh, caffeine and a bunch of uh, fat soluble vitamins mixed in here. So we have other problems. Right. But um, And a bunch of people who can't sleep well at night. Is, right. is there any VA that's actually like using this? Do you know? Like, no, not yet. I okay. mean, but I think, uh, you know, we're early on in human work takes, well, it'll probably take another 13 years, you mm-hmm. know, to really finish the trials. And, and if it, if it's something that's palatable that a pharmacy can dispense and that people are willing to drink it and it works, mm-hmm. then yeah, I think it could be scalable. Cause like even, and now we have, you can get melatonin at the VA, mm-hmm. you know, it's a vitamin. That's you right. Can, you yeah. know, a supplement, but um, just one of those got used enough. Did that study look at any TBI markers? Was there any benefit in terms of like traumatic brain injury? Symptoms? Yeah. Yeah. The study wasn't powered to look at that, but our larger study for sure, we're going to look at all the post-concussive, common post-concussive symptoms, headaches, pain, and then um, mood. So depression, comorbid depression is a big one. Well, that'd be cool when that does come out. Yeah. So we'll wait. We'll set the clock for 13 years. Yeah. Yeah. We'll, <laughs> have you, have a- we'll have you back on to talk about it then. In the meantime. Anytime. Yeah. I don't know. There's like the whole like, and then I, I don't know if it was just the, there's other, there's diet's hard to control for, you yeah. know, especially, uh, you know, when you're measuring certain things, it's like, did the people do better because they're eating better? Uh, was it mindful? Being mm-hmm. mindful of their diet, um, you know, just having a breakfast, you know, is supposed to, you know, help people get the day started. Uh, who knows? I mean, there's a lot of confounding problems and I think there's 26 people in that study. So the number was low, but still it was interesting, I thought. And uh, That's right. I mean, that's why it's so important to have control groups that are still doing the same routine mm-hmm. as everyone else. And like they're being mindful about they're drinking their shake and it's double blinded. So they don't know if they're right. the placebo right. or not. And so um, absolutely, you know, it could just be the routine. 
or mm-hmm. the mindful eating. Definitely talk But it's not. <laughs> You're like, diet more than I thought we would at this talk. <laughs> well, yeah, it was only because she... <laughs> no, I know. It's, had but it's, interest, it leads to an interesting we point don't that... don't talk about diet with patients. No, like, we don't. That that's exactly like, what I was going to say. I mean, diet clearly plays... I mean, obviously, we know it plays a role in sleep, but I, I rarely bring up, like, what are you... Other than, like, hey, don't drink caffeine late at night or... But it's, it's really, I mean, when, in going back to what you're saying about, you know, you know, potentially a Mediterranean diet being protective for neurodegenerative disorder. I mean, like we know that the Mediterranean diet is very beneficial from a cardiovascular standpoint. And it, it, I think it's all about the microbiome, the gut microbiome, and we're learning more about that. But I think that's probably the mechanism by which diet variations in diet affects sleep. Cause I mean, we know that there's the gut brain, um, you know, neural pathways. And I mean, I'm not going to bring this back to Parkinson's, but you know, there's an emerging <laughs> story with the gut microbiome and Parkinson's. We'll just leave it at that. Okay. Way over my head now. Yeah. You know, yeah. there's too many feedback loops here. For our listeners and I guess for other practitioners who would be listening, kind of maybe summarize your thoughts on patients with trauma-related sleep disorder and what yeah. your take-home points would be for our listeners. Yeah. I mean, so assuming that, um, Listeners are either clinicians or, you know, patients or um, caretakers or loved ones of patients. I I think, I mean, the, the main take-home point I would look at is just, you know, in terms of symptoms, is this something that bothers you or not? That's right. Good. And if it's not, if it's something that you would have never known, you know, if you didn't have someone telling you about it, then maybe just leave well enough alone. Um now, a caveat on that is how old are you, right? And if you're 75 and and this is happening, then maybe we pay more attention to it. But if you're in your 30s, you know, pay attention to your lifestyle, do all the things that you would normally do to stay healthy, but but don't get too bent out of shape about it. If it does bother you, then I think we start going down the path of are there symptomatic treatments like medications and they all have side effects and, you know, pros and cons as John and Bohan uh, mentioned. Um, And then in terms of if you are in one of those high risk groups, you know, let's say you have something on your screening, you, you, you could go through a screening and that's something we do in our studies a lot. So we look at Uh, not only just the typical motor features of Parkinson's, but, you know, like autonomic function, like, you know, orthostatic Mm -hmm. hypotension is a really common feature that shows up very early. Loss of smell is another one, anosmia. Um, And then motor and cognitive function as well. So even just like fine motor skills, like they go. You love to see internists do the Parkinson's. Yeah, you don't have to do do it. Just just ask questions. I do the finger tap and alternating movements <laughs> by the time that manifests they're you probably better, pretty far along probably yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah so i think it's more of these subtle symptoms that um people don't really pick up like you know constipation and you know urinary the anosmia is tough with our patient with our patient population just due to the exposures they've had that's uh, right with it would be a change in anosmia so let's say they you know previously were you know really good at I don't know, distinguishing different types of wine. And then like all of a sudden they couldn't and they didn't have COVID and, and they didn't they have didn't, allergies. That was, that's the I other mean, that's one. Like all, it's very nonspecific. COVID is a new one too. Now. Very nonspecific. Loss of color vision is another one. Huh. It's a subtle sign, but you know, know, if you don't have like the test. The, yeah. yeah. But anyway, there's, yeah. So I'm supposed to do take home mes- messages. No, no, it's, no, we but, just, yeah. it's fine. I, I tried after reading like the trauma associated sleep disorder article, I really tried to like, write my own diagnostic criteria and all I could come up with now that I look at like my notes here is there I would I would consider it and you can disagree that's fine because this is evolving diagnosis but there's got to be a clear traumatic event at the onset of the parasomnia but then I wrote underneath within how many days 90 days a year three years and then I wrote you know is there an age cutoff you know, where, oh, you haven't had anything for 10 years. Now you're 50 year So that wasn't clear. Um, but I wrote, maybe there's a non-REM subtype where you don't have good recall or recurrent content of what's going on at night. And then there's a uh, REM subtype where you actually have good recall and it's a recurrent content. Then that's all I got. <laughs> <laughs> you know. I think, the, I think, I mean, it, Miranda, I the Barkham syndrome. The Bar- yeah, Barkham no, syndrome. <laughs> I think the the biggest thing is that the the inciting event leading to 
Right. But we don't know the within, time. Within, within what time when, frame are we going to, uh, yeah. you know, we don't know. But uh, And just because someone had an inciting event a while ago doesn't mean that they that it won't show up later in life when they're in an early synucleinopathy. I mean, I don't think yeah. that excludes, you know, um, synuclein. So I guess that's that's what I keep saying about the most parsimonious explanation is really there's one thing going on. Um, yeah, I mean, the people I've seen later in life with the, the RBDs associated with Parkinson's, I know we're wrapping up, but I don't typically see like an inciting traumatic event that they're like stressing about. It's like, I'm back, it's, it's something mm-hmm. more, you know, kind of not specific. Yeah. yeah. But um, I know we're kind of out of time. Yeah. Yeah. I think we got to wrap it up, but this was a really interesting conversation. I'm really glad that we were able to, to set this up and, and, and get you, you here and that you're already in Ann Arbor. So this worked out really well for us. It'd be great when more research comes out that you have to talk about it with you again. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Thanks for Definitely. having me. This is a lot of fun. All right. Well, Thank you. are you on, are you on Twitter so we can tag you all in? I'm actually not. I'm a dinosaur. I'm quasi on Twitter, but not really. Like I have an account, but. <laughs> All, right. All right. Well, thanks a lot, Miranda. Really appreciated having you on. Thanks guys. Thanks. Thank you.